The following podcast contains explicit language. This is Correct Politically. Welcome back to Correct Politically, a podcast in which we discuss modern issues of global concern. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Nitsan Rivlin. Hello there. Joshua Haymotz. Hello, world. And Rafi Blumenthal. Shalom. So today we're... today. This podcast is going to be the last podcast before the actual election, the U.S. presidential. The last podcast that we record, right? Not the last. Correct. Okay. So the last podcast. If Trump wins, it's the last <laughs> podcast, podcast ever. <laughs> yeah, I'm moving to Mexico or Costa Rica. You guys can come with me if you Not like. because he's a rapist. Just No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, nothing okay. to do. Yeah, yeah just, to, just want to get out of America. Um, this week, we're going to be discussing something that we each found interesting about the election. I'm going to be talking about if the election is actually rigged. Mostly what Donald Trump has been saying is that the election is rigged, but it's mostly the, it's also the Republican Party in general. And to me, when I hear is if the election is rigged, what I think about is gerrymandering and redistricting. Trump is referring to is election fraud or voter fraud, which really rarely, rarely happens. Um, there's a professor that was actually um, referenced in a couple of articles that I saw that I read in relation to this. So I think he's like kind of like a big deal when it comes to election politics. Um, his name is John Justin Levitt and he's a professor at Loyola law school in Los Angeles. And he's been basically tracking allegations of voter fraud since 2000 and out of billions of ballots, he only found 31 reports of voter fraud. So this really goes to show you like how small voter fraud is, but like how bombastic Trump is when he says that there's voter fraud, people actually believe it and people actually buy it. And like, it makes them think that the, like the election is actually going to be rigged. Wherein the, the truth is that like the, the chances of that happening are infinitesimal. So when you say voter fraud, do you mean that, the votes are being deliberately miscounted and that Republicans have more votes in actuality than is being counted? Or do you mean that like there are non-existent people voting for Democrats? It's both. I mean, there's it's like dead people that are being counted or it's mostly him saying that like the, the election commissions of different states are being, you know, manipulated or they're somehow corrupted into you know, putting the election towards either the Democrats or the Republicans. Most cases of voter fraud center on the fact that some people are registered in more than one state and they'll try to vote in more than one state. Right. So it's a very individual problem. It's not, you know, a systemic one. It's not as if somebody who's counting the votes in any sort of district is, you know, throwing out Trump ballots or Clinton ballots. It's much more individual based. Even more so than that, all these, like, the election commissions, like, how they count votes, it's all statewide. In other words, like, all these election commissions is not federally done. It's statewide and at the local level. Or county-wide. Really. Or county-level. Like, state, it's sort of the um, edicts or terms will be set by the state or state legislature, which we should remind listeners is majority uh, Republican. And then at the county level is where, like, the actual counting happens. So if you were going to rig an election, you would need to go, like, county by county. No, so, like, when Trump says, like, if I lose Florida, it's really rigged, there's a, Flor like, the Florida has a Republican governor, it has a Republican legislature, like, those are the people that are going to be counting the votes, and those are the people that are going to be, like, watching over the election. 
it, it's also just worth pointing out, like we are now doing what I think a lot of the, um, I guess, commentators have done, which is jumping into the sort of weeds of voter fraud. But that's not even what Trump is talking about. He, I don't know if he's even used the word voter fraud. He just continuously, ambiguously, you know, declares that if he loses, it means that the election is rigged. Like he hasn't gotten into the specifics, but the claim is so absurd that we're trying to explain why it can't happen by addressing this voter fraud issue. But I, the whole rigging thing is just so vague. I agree that he's that we're projecting what we think he means because he's not being specific enough, but he's also called for poll watchers, like people to actually come to the polls, which brings up memories of like southern states 50 60 years ago of people of color who were intimidated at the polls i definitely think that he does mean vote rigging and what i meant before like that it's working there's a recent washington post poll that showed that half of trump supporters don't think the election will be fair and you know it's kind of like fostering this like notion that this election is rigged and also like if you go back Trump also, during the primaries, thought, like, if he was going to lose Florida, you know, uh, Marco Rubio was having something to do with it because he was rigging the elections. Or in Texas, he also thought Ted Cruz was also going to be, like, rigging the elections. During polls, when polls come out, he also says, like, if a poll's not, like, working for him, then, like, it's really, you know, it's it's rigged or the media's against him. I'm just saying, like, it's fostering, like, this notion that, like, this thing that's been our democracy, like, ever since, like the United States was created, like, he thinks it's just, like, shit. So Trump is really giving a voice to this, but he's not the first one to come up with it. He's just the first presidential candidate to talk about it. This has been, like, a part of the right-wing media for a while about vote rigging and whatever. Um, You know, even when we talked about last week in the 1960 election, many Republicans after that claimed that the vote was rigged, and they actually maybe even had a point. But... You know, in recent elections, there's no evidence of it whatsoever, but they, you know, right-wing media are just trying to explain away why people are rejecting their ideas on a national level. So to me, when you really, like, focus on a problem, which is not a problem, which is voter fraud, and you, you ignore... Like, what I think is a bigger problem, which is gerrymandering and, and um, redistricting. So... While you're like looking at one thing, you're not you're like ignoring one uh, the other thing, which is like to me like a way way bigger problem. Yeah, I'm not convinced that gerrymandering is that big of a problem. So I think in, that in the modern day or throughout American history, modern day. Okay, because I think you're right. There's some of these districts the way they're drawn out is ridiculous, and it's obvious that like this is done for um, to elect more of a certain party to Congress. But I think in general, people just sort themselves out and want to live among people who have similar ideas. So, like, a lot of Democrats live in urban centers. And New York, like Manhattan, for instance, is a part of one district. And it houses the most amount of people. But there's no, like, redistricting done in Manhattan to get more Democrats elected or to, like, get less Democrats elected. It just sort of happens that big urban centers have a lot of people and those people generally vote Democrats. So that would, but the problem is with that argument is that 
if you look at how some of the districts are drawn, it becomes clear that it's no longer just like chopping them up into like how their people themselves are distributed. So while you're correct that like in general, I think a lot of the polarization that we see in politics and otherwise is a result of people liking to be around other people that are similar to them. If you look at the manner in which and the shape that districts are actually drawn after like gerrymandering, um, which I think is actually the name of someone who started doing it. It's like this guy. That's, where the, name came, that's think, where the name came from. I think oh, really? so. Am I right? Yeah. 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 Um, so <laughs> at, thanks to gerrymander, <laughs> this week's election is sponsored by. Uh, no, but back to the point, if you look at how they're actually drawn and, and the ridiculous, like they're connecting two opposite parts of a state through like this tiny little line and then something underneath. I think that becomes less compelling. I mean, in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, it's like very clear. Like if you look at a picture of their map, like in 2010 and how they won in 2012, like it, it's like so clear that there's like a straight line that they, that they wanted to specifically get Republican voters like for them. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know how widespread it is. Um, and, and I think an easier way to explain why, you know, Democrats win national elections, but do poorer in the House elections is because um, people just sort of sort themselves into very small like districts. Yeah. And, and also that's why it's a fair point as far as how widespread it is. So just to make a distinction, when Romano talks about redistricting and gerrymandering, those are actually two different things. So we have to redistrict every 10 years when the census data comes out. Because like, for example, in the 70s and 80s, Manhattan was losing like hundreds of thousands of citizens every year. So like that district would get, you know, count for fewer votes or whatever. So the redistricting part is a necessary activity as that you do in response to the service, the census data that comes out. The gerrymandering is the term for like the sort of like intentionally drawing districts that favor your party's uh, results. So just in closing this uh, topic, President Obama, like this is a pretty big issue for him. And after, uh, you know, after he's out of office, he's pledged to kind of look at this in a different way and like try and push policies to try and change gerrymandering. So, Amy, I know I think that you were going to go into like the implications of what like people actually believing um, elections being rigged are. Yeah, the perspective that I wanted to take was to discuss why this is such a big deal. Like, why are people actually saying like, oh, this is a challenge on the American system, this suggestion that the system is rigged? So in order to get into that a little bit deeper, I wanted to sort of take a, a more broad perspective on it, which is to talk about what are the things that make the American system stable? Because right now we sort of take for granted that like, oh, of course the American system is stable. We're going to have an election every four years and every eight years a president is going to you know, step down willingly from power and then it'll usher in a new administration. And these are all things that we're so used to, but it doesn't it didn't need to play out that way. Um there, you can look all over throughout history, democracies fail, and you people elect dictators. Like, Hitler was elected. Um, Bashar al-Assad, he was elected. So, um, the and when America originally started, it started with the Articles of Confederation, which was a failure. So, America already had a trial run where they failed, and finally, when we had the Constitution, it was really thought of as the American experiment. And um, the things, there are four sort of precedents that I look at throughout history that sort of made the American experiment turn into just what we now know as the American system. Um, so the first one I want to look at is the willingness to relinquish power. 
Uh, and this is so important that it was actually acknowledged by a group of settlers on the Ohio River who named their uh, city after a Roman general named Cincinnatus, who is famous for having relinquished the role of dictator after uh, having like intensely awesome uh, victories and stuff like that against Rome's enemies. So, of course, the comparison made is to George Washington, who after the Revolutionary War was totally ready to just go back to his farm. In fact, King George actually said, quote, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. That's Hashtag how he said revolutions. It, right? <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Mike Duncan. <laughs> A lot of oh, this comes pitch, from Mike by the Duncan. way. Yeah. Revolutions fundraiser is coming up tomorrow, uh, Sunday night, first week in November. So. Oh, okay, November's cool. I'm going to buy like a hat or something. <laughs> the Should last two weeks was kind of an ode to John Dickerson. So maybe this is uh, an ode to Mike Duncan. He's a great person to follow on Twitter also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Dick. Uh, both, both actually, <laughs> both Mike, uh, Dick Mike and Dunk. That's usually how I start my day. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of Dick, a little bit of Dunk. So perhaps even more famously than than right after the Revolutionary War, when when he was willing to go back to the farm, after two um, terms as president, he just willingly gave up the presidency. He could have ran for another term. There's no reason why he couldn't. And he could have lived the rest of his life as president. We could have had two decades of George Washington's president, and that would have set a precedent for presidents being in office for extended periods amounts of time, like spending their entire lives in office, something that really resembles a lot more like a monarchy. But he was willing to give it up after two terms, and that was a precedent respected by everyone until it was under threat by FDR in the 30s and 40s. And yes, I think that's a black mark on FDR, FDR's record. Second thing I wanted to look at was just generally the two-party system. Is it, it is imperative that a democracy have more than one party. So uh, an example of that is actually Assad, uh, who only there's only one party in Syria. He ran with no opposition. So that wasn't much of a democracy when there's no other candidates. Right. So uh, America has a very strong... But he did win with a 97% margin. So <laughs> yeah. Where's the other 3% from? Yeah, 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 I don't know. <laughs> They're no longer with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, you, are you referring to the piece, uh, the John Oliver piece? Uh, he, he did a maybe. great one on this. I think oh. he did it on like Kazakhstan and like, yeah, the, yeah. the Stan it, elections. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, you go watch that. Uh, so the last thing I want to mention is the one most relevant for the situation now with the election which is conceding the election. The precedent for this in American history is the election of 1800, which is Adams versus Jefferson versus Burr. It's the one where uh, Jefferson won. And it was one of the most bitter campaigns of all time with severely personal attacks and just like the whole shebang. And it was actually very confusing election results. Um, there was a lot of shenanigans, like the Georgia ballot was faulty, and there was just all sorts of strange things going on. And it w the there was a tie in the Electoral College and went to the House, and the House went, it was voted on 35 times before Jefferson beat out Burr. And what's incredible about this whole event is after all this uh, like power struggle, the, the decision was made and the opposition party stood down. And... That is the thing that's under threat right now. So correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's less about the election being rigged that you're bringing up. It's more about Trump during the third presidential election um, debate. debate saying that he wouldn't accept the results. Yeah, it's about the opposition party standing down okay. after the election results. Just wanted to clarify yes. that. And in, in my final analysis, I think that like 
we have all this great stuff that happened in the beginning of American history that set up all this uh, this system that has succeeded really for, for the most part except for the whole civil war thing but that's another discussion for a couple hundred years and I don't think we should take that for granted because there are other democracies around the world where it didn't work out that way and it still could swing in a crazy direction and um, like a marriage it could start off well but you have to work on it or like a relationship you know um, that's sort of how I've been thinking about it so you constantly need to work on it in order to succeed. So I, I do think it, it, this is a very serious thing, what what has been going on this election. What I find interesting is what you were alluding to in that, you know, how the American system works and that it's incredibly unique because there's no, there's, I think Chile is the only other country that has replicated the American system and it's worked. With term you're, limits? You're referring you to uh, stable presidential government, right? Right. So democracy is one thing and, and parliamentary systems tend to be more stable and there are lots of examples of stable parliamentary right, governments. Right, but there's, very, there's no examples democracies. of presidential democracies besides yeah, the United exactly. States and I think Chile and working. Chile's and, only since the 80s. They had right. a dictator before and that. And generally when the United States is tasked with rebuilding a nation that they had invaded prior they're, they'll usually put in a parliamentary system because putting in a, a presidential, a democratic presidential, presidential democratic system um, usually leads to a tyrant or uh, taking over and very little democracy. Which is what George Washington could have been if he wanted to be. Right. So the fact that like the United States hasn't devolved into devolved or evolved into a, <laughs> a tyrannical system is is quite like amazing. And this could opinion. be the year. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> right. No, but but the the point that and part of the reason without you know slipping too much into that whole discussion of parliament versus president is that in a parliamentary system you don't have fixed terms of rule. So at any point you the current you know ruling party can lose the majority and you have to have elections. And also it gives voice to factions inside of any country. So the whole problem with the presidency is that it's zero sum. Whereas in parliament, in parliamentary systems, the sort of like percentage of the vote you get is more or less reflected in the number of seats you get in the parliament. So there's not this just like black or white, um, you know, red or blue, zero sum uh, when lost. But that's why we need the separation of powers, isn't it? Because now we have that represented like the Republicans own the House. And even if they didn't own the House, they'd still have representation in the House. And so as long as Congress has power, then they have representation in the federal government. Correct. But like for the executive yeah, right. branch, okay. it's, it's, you know, win or loss. Whereas in parliamentary systems, the, one of the reasons why I think Nitsan's correct in describing them as more stable is because they exactly because they don't work in that manner. Speaking of Nitsan, um, <laughs> didn't you I think you wanted to talk about uh, the, the changing demographics and how people are. Um, going to or how you think people are going to vote this year versus in previous elections so yeah exactly I, I've found something really interesting in this election when looking at different polls is that how different demographic groups are going to be voting or at least claim that they're going to vote so historically the Democrats have done very well with working class voters and when I say working class I usually mean non-college degree and blue-collar workers sort of like factory workers or small business owners or, or things along that nature um, in fact, Obama in 2012, he won voters without a college degree and actually tied among voters with a college degree. And that's because of the minority vote, but he, actually, but he lost white voters with a college degree. So this time, though, 
what we're seeing is slightly different in that Clinton is doing actually markedly better among college-educated voters, but is really struggling with non-college-educated voters. Um, and generally, Democrats have done pretty poorly with this group. Uh, over the years, college-educated voters have shifted more and more to Democrats' camp. In the early 90s, the Republicans uh, had a slight lead in college-educated voters, but now the Democrats have close to a 15-point advantage among that demographic group. You're seeing a realignment among educated voters over whom they prefer, over whose party they prefer. Um, so it, it's really odd in that, in that in this election, it's actually more striking than at any other point in the past two decades. How do you explain the shift? So Trump's support is mostly among working class voters. And I think that can really be attributed to his populist message. He loves the poorly educated, doesn't he? Yeah. Big league. <laughs> Big league. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's, he's really appealing to that. Um, and it's quite striking because actually the people who support him are not necessarily the poorest among us. Uh, they're generally, like Trump supporters, are, are generally pretty well off. But they're non-college educated and they are blue collar workers. They just happen to be successful blue collar workers. So I think that his message is really gaining a lot of steam among them. But it's only gaining steam among the white blue collar workers, excuse me, uh, because his remarks are generally seen to be sort of incendiary and racist. And it's very difficult to convince, you know, minority um, blue-collar workers to vote for him. So among that small group or that group of white blue-collar workers, he's actually leading by about 50 points, which is pretty substantial. Um, I think that his free trade uh, ideas really resonate well with blue-collar workers. Yeah, generally blue-collar workers are against uh, trade agreements. I mean, union households are, have always been against uh, trade agreements. They were against NAFTA. They're against TPP. But union workers have generally voted for Democrats. Democrats. You know, right. the AFL-CIO, the biggest union in America, I mean, their leadership is supporting Hillary Clinton. But the question becomes, will the actual constituents of that union vote for Clinton? And I think Trump's opposition to free trade is actually just like thinly veiled nationalism because it's explained by the fact, right, that like we're going to make ourselves great again by rejecting this sort of like international outreach as articulated via free trade so like i don't think it's necessarily like a commerce you know you know uh labor or like you know economist type of argument i think again like just if the reason why people find it compelling is because it's a sort of very thinly veiled cry for american nationalism and that speaks to a certain profile of a voter and it's not just so much that trump is appealing to these workers and he's just you know um like unique in that regard like he's one of a kind in that regard this is a trend that's been happening for a few years now because there's actually an amazing article about this in the new yorker by george packer in which he discusses how democrats have become a party of coastal elites and minorities what's the title of the article sorry um it's called you. um hillary clinton and the populist revolt and it was october 31st uh, right. 2016 so a really amazing article um and in that in that article Packer interviews Larry Summers, who's a major player in democratic circles in terms of coming up with an economic vision. Um, and he has spoken about how he 
toured the country basically and talked to different voters. But most of the voters he talked to were either minorities or, you know, coastal elites, you know, people who are college educated. They completely ignored uh, this whole pretty big sect of working class voters. And, and in that article, he also, uh, Packer also interviewed Clinton and she talked about how, you know, these people have really been ignored and we need to really include them in the conversation going forward. So why am I bringing all this up? I think it's going to be really interesting to see going forward who's going to vote for who. So, I, I mean, I think that that in this election, we're going to see some states that were historically have voted for Democrats, like Iowa, for instance, or Ohio. Um, and because there's a high concentration of white, blue-collar voters in those two states, they may go to Trump. And now Trump is not doing well in any swing state. He's losing North Carolina, which has often gone to Republicans. He's not doing well in Florida. He's, Virginia's not even in play anymore. Now there's Colorado. And what were you uh, Ohio. He'll probably take Ohio, but it's like almost not even a swing state anymore. That's what I'm saying. Like Ohio has always been a swing state. Right, right, in right. In this specific election, or and I think going forward also, both Ohio and Iowa, and maybe possibly Wisconsin and Michigan and like the whole, and the whole Rust Belt, could really go to Republicans if they continue this populist message. On the other hand, you'll see, I think you'll see at least, that in this election you'll see North Carolina, Virginia, possibly Arizona. Georgia, and even possibly th- South Carolina. I Well, I don't think that Democrats will win Georgia or South Carolina, but they'll be very, very close. And in future elections, as those states become more urbanized and include more minorities and just bigger urban centers— there's a very good chance that those states will lean Democratic. Right. And and then what you're seeing on the flip side is like the actual West as opposed to Midwest. So Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and almost even Texas are starting to like lean blue or already are blue, whereas historically those were like purple or red. And that has a lot to do with education um, and urbanization. And ethnicity. Yes. Well, those all three go hand in hand. Right. <laughs> no, what I was going to say is, in 2012, when the Republicans lost the presidential election, the Republicans kind of did like a postmortem and tried to figure out like what they like how they were not connecting well to um, certain minorities. And I think that if Trump like wasn't as denigrative or denigrating to certain minorities, they might have had a chance with lower income or or non-educated, uh, you know, or more of the minorities. Yeah, so Trump Trump is a combination of two things. They don't have to go hand in hand. An anti-trade uh, America first policy could also be inclusive of the immigrants who are already here. He, I don't think, is, is deft enough to pull that off. Like, it's a very difficult message to sell. But you can maybe see possibly, you know, a Marco Rubio or a Ted Cruz pull that off. But um, it's... It's a fine line to walk on because once you, as Rafi mentioned before, like the populist message can very easily be um, misinterpreted as a nationalist message and an anti-immigrant and anti-minority message. 
and and in the U.S., right, nationalism is almost always tied to skin color, right? Yeah. In like places like India or Sudan, you'll have nationalism that will be like religious based or ethnicity based. But in the U.S., that's almost always been, and Western Europe, I guess, it's been based on skin color, more or less. So when you're watching the election this week, you know, pay attention to the exit polls from Iowa, Ohio, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and pay attention to the demographic breakdown because I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to look at and going forward it'll have a lot of ramifications thanks for explaining uh, the battleground states I think we're all pretty educated after that Um, Rafi I think you're going to try and push us very much to vote and uh, you're going to give us a little spiel I am it's a little muster schmooze So, yeah, I'm going to try and make um, what I hope is an impassioned, but even more than impassioned, hopefully compelling argument for why anybody, no matter where you live or what your political orientation is, you really, really, really should go out and vote in this election for president in 2016, but also, you know, I think for future elections, midterms as well. Um, So I think there's a few reasons why this is so important. Um, The first we'll just like say, you know, out of hand is like, Everybody knows, right? There's generations of people, millions of people that have struggled and fought, and some people haven't yet succeeded in attaining the right to vote. It's sort of like the fundamental human right in certain ways from our perspective, but there are still a lot of people that have long, long histories, including the Jewish people, of being denied the right to vote, and um, some people who still struggle, unfortunately, for that. Black people, women. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so like it's not something that we should feel comfortable enough to so easily dismiss. It's not all about the Jews, Rafi. First of all, I think, yeah, I think King David stole that election. (laughs) 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 Well, it's Solomon in the voter intimidation. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but uh, St. Carib was uh, pretty pretty close behind. Anyway, so like this is just like the basic one of like fine. was it David who like boned Batsheva or something yeah. like had yeah, her yeah. husband sent to the front lines of battle so he That's can get killed? That's pretty badass. I mean, it's also like supremely ruthless, but like really badass. Yeah, it was a massive scandal. He almost lost the election because of it. Yeah, I think Billy Bush was with him actually. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, so with that sort of lofty um, overarching goal out of the way, just a few other, I think, compelling reasons. The first is that if you're like us or most other people that at least we know, you probably pay a shit ton of taxes, like pardon my French, anywhere between 20% to 40% of your income probably goes to the government in one way or another. And because you're giving that much money to the government, like maybe you should try to take a little bit more of a stake in how those monies are spent. You know, if you think about it like in a work week, right? Like almost like half your week, depending on what your uh, tax uh, bracket is, can be going towards the government. Like maybe you should try and dictate how that's spent. The other one is down ballot races, right? So aside from presidential election, there's all sorts of elections happening on the local county state level. Uh, I think it's obvious, but just to make it clear, like you obviously are much more affected by the more local the election is. So So, have you heard the idea that there should be compulsory voting? Like, Yeah, I'm I'm torn between supporting that one and between like education testing for voting. uh, I'm so on board for the second one. (laughs) So, you know, I'm I'm sort of split. (laughs) No, I, I... 
I'm it's also just split always, on the democracy thing. It's just so like, restrictive. I'm not though. the right I mean, person to <laughs> ask about Voter that. ID laws. Now you want to have an education test? That's kind well, of meaning like, uh, I have no problem. No, no, I'm time. against voter ID laws. I'm for an education. Yeah, <laughs> meaning like you shouldn't have to answer like a five or ten question quiz about the person you're voting or persons you're voting for. Yeah, you have to be informed <laughs> about what you're doing. Ralph, if I understand what you're saying correctly, you're not necessarily arguing that voting your vote matters so much as it's your civic duty to vote. Um, see, this is where it gets tricky from like an ideological perspective. I would say that um, I do feel it's a civic duty. And I also feel that if you think your vote doesn't matter, that's toxic. And I would argue against that. So okay. while like, does it matter or not? Like we can game theorize this thing all day. But the bigger problem in th- the, the problem with thinking your vote doesn't count is thinking your vote doesn't count. Why would anybody think that their vote wouldn't count? Your vote Because it's ca- mathematically irrelevant? Yes. So here's my biggest problem with the whole thing of my vote doesn't matter is because that is not just a decision you make on November 8th. It's a, um, a sort of ideology that breeds apathy and skepticism. And by you acting on that sentiment of saying my vote doesn't count you're almost like disengaging yourself from the political process. And it's not just about walking away. It's then also amplifying the voices of other people that are going to go and vote. Okay, okay. So I actually think my vote doesn't count, but I, I hear what you're saying, and and all that stuff still is meaningful to me, and I actually don't have a way of reconciling that. Like, why? why I, I genuinely think that, yeah, my individual vote doesn't count. That's a mathematical reality. Rafi just gave you, like, the eye of death. I, you know it's what? pretty I'm, awesome. I'll take it. Bring on the eye. But I care about... <laughs> I care about politics. I'm like interested in it like academically. It's like really interesting to study. It's cultural. It's societal. It does affect our lives. Uh, I don't know. There's like cognitive dissonance for me because, you know, I'm still going to participate. I'm still going to talk about it. I'm still going to like in the sukkah with my mom and my grandmother have these long conversations about why Bobby shouldn't be voting for Trump. Never mind. <laughs> so, so Ralphie, you have like, I mean, this is your chance. You actually yeah. have, you can mold someone's mind right now. Like, oh, like take advantage. I, you, you know, I'm skeptical of changing people's minds with yeah. anything. I know, but, you, so but do it. Huh. But for, for yeah. the sake of the podcast, do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So again, like my fundamental argument against that is the apathy which it breeds and the um, ideology it sort of fosters. So like, will any vote you cast um, change the ledger? Maybe so, maybe not. But will embracing like the act of voting and participating in the democratic process impact your perception of how government affects you? And also, let's not forget, we all have, like social media. You can like whatever share posts. And like there is what to be said, just like nowadays, it's not cool to make fun of people that are gay. Whereas when we were in elementary school, it probably was, right? That's not okay anymore. So we have control over how things are being perceived by articulating our own perceptions so if we can move as a cohort of like millennials 20 somethings whatever and begin to shift towards a mental schema or whatever where like voting is cool and participating in government is something we care about that can be like astronomically impactful so you're not saying that a vote an individual vote impacts the election you're saying that an individual your your attitude towards it impacts the culture around you which is part of the election. Because, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I think that it's not necessarily about the ballot that you cast, but it's about the 
ideology you're embracing or going to become susceptible to by not participating in that. And and then just the uh, only other last reason I would share is that if you do decide, despite all of my pleading, to still not vote, you should also then feel that you've rescinded your um, authority or ability to um, complain about anything in politics because oh. you can't both be apathetic and complain about um, you know the sort of corruption. Un- unless you you make your conscientious objector though, right? Isn't that ah, participating that. in the whole thing? <laughs> Seriously, that's saying that's like the stupidest I've, thing I've part- ever. Like you're not Gandhi, okay? So <laughs> take off your freaking high hat and walk into a goddamn uh, high vote. school. <laughs> okay, since we all love to it- complain, go and vote. Yeah. In conclusion, I think what we can learn from our election miniseries and from this episode is uh, that the demographics are definitely changing for the way people that are voting. Um, the election is not going to be rigged. Um, it Not having a peaceful transfer of power like definitely will have an effect on our future and it, like has no historical precedent. Thank you. The word. <laughs> precedent behind it. And that you should vote. So with that, uh, we will go to my favorite segment, The Secret Stash. Nissan, do you want to start us off? I would love to. So my Secret Stash is an article from about five years ago. Uh, from BuzzFeed. It's called The Time Mitt Romney Rescued a 14-Year-Old Kidnap Victim. So this came up on my Twitter feed. Um, I think it was some Republican I was following who was like longing for days when they could like their candidate. Um, and it was talking about Mitt Romney and the story that I had no idea about. So basically, I think it was, I don't remember how many years ago, but one, uh, Mitt Romney worked at Bain Capital, uh, this investment uh, firm in Massachusetts. And one of the partners there's uh, child went missing in New York over the weekend when she was at like a party or something. And obviously, you know, they informed the police and they tried to do whatever, but the police wasn't really able to find anything. So he, so Mitt Romney found out about this story about one of his uh friends and co-workers whose child went missing and what Romney did was he closed down Bain Capital for a few days he flew all like the employees basically of Bain to New York and they started searching themselves for this child uh, they handed out leaflets they went to like all these shady parts of the city to talk to anyone and everyone and they really went like all out to do this and think about it, like this is an investment firm they make how long ago was this i am um, a couple of decades ago i think it's actually uh, a consulting firm uh consulting firm excuse me so you know this is a lot of lost revenue he obviously you know had a lot to lose from doing this there's no guarantee that they're going to find the kid um and yeah and it's just like this insane story of like how Mitt romney who we all sort of view at least in 2012, how the electorate viewed him as this sort of like out of touch elitist. Because Dan Pfeiffer is really good at his job, right? <laughs> and in fact, like he's so in line with like people who he knows around him, and he's willing to sacrifice so much to help 
those in need. How was that so, not touted in the 2012 election? I'm not exactly sure. By the way, they, they what happened found, to the kid? Yeah. Found, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming a happy ending. Amy's you know? like, yeah, how sorry. is this not in sorry, the election? Like, what the fuck happened to the kid? So the kid, um, the story about all these people flying down to New York and looking for this kid was picked up by the media. The media reported on it, and then somebody, some called up the hotline and said, is there a reward for bringing in the kid? And then he hung up real quick and the police traced it and found that the girl was being held in someone's basement. They rescued her and it's a happy ending at the end. But yeah, it's a crazy, crazy story. Right, and like her blood levels were so high with like, I don't remember which drug that like, I think if it would have been 12 hours more, she would have, they thought she would have died. Like it was Christ. So like Mitt Romney quite literally saved this child's life what a nice dude it's just like a nice story i have to say that definitely affects my perception of mitt romney i actually i don't know if you guys saw uh there's a documentary on netflix called mitt i'm not sure if you guys all saw it but like what's it about (laughs) it's it's about the invention of the baseball it's it's actually (laughs) stop trying to change the subject So what it's actually about is during the presidential election, like he allowed this documentarian to kind of like follow him around and and um, like during the election. And I had this like perception of Mitt Romney to be like this stuck up, like kind of like guy with a stick up his ass. But this this documentary like portrayed him in like kind of like this different light. And not to say that I probably would have voted for him, but I'm just saying like I don't know. You should see the documentary. It was pretty good. Yeah, hey. we have. I just want to say that we have a tendency to like you know project our deepest fears among our uh, officials. No, among people who we we resent. <laughs> like, yeah. and and sometimes it's true, but oftentimes like you'll find out that like okay, like these people are just re- pretty normal. They just have different ideas than I do. Yeah. Hey, Amy, what's your secret stash? My secret stash comes from uh, Netflix. And anytime something space or science related on Netflix comes out, I'm like super excited You're about such a it. Nerd! Oh my god, it's like getting so out of hand though. <laughs> so this awesome dramatization of the space race came out, and the acting is all like really good. And there's a narrator, and it's sort of like a cross between like a sort of documentary-ish, but it's really more like a series, like a mini series. What's it called? It's called Space Race. And it's awesome. And the thing that really I found compelling was that I never realized that NASA, at the head of NASA was this guy, um, something Von Braun, I or forgot his first name, but he was a Nazi scientist the Americans brought back. And I always knew that the America had brought back a lot of Nazis, scientists, people who should have been hanged, quite frankly. Um, but it, the Cold War started immediately afterwards. America needed these people t- for security purposes, so I totally understand why they did that. So they brought a lot of Nazi scientists. This guy was big into creating a V2 rocket, which was Germany's like proud rocket thing, and he was the visionary for NASA, and he was the man in charge. He was the Steve Jobs of NASA, and he was a Nazi. And it just really got me thinking that all this stuff that we have benefited tremendously so much from technology developed from the space race, the amount of national pride we got from getting on the moon, which was a very, very real thing, came from a Nazi. Ralph, what do you got for me? So uh, this week, for those of you who aren't fans or aren't aware, is um, when Mike Duncan of the Revolutions podcast fame uh, runs his annual fundraiser. So my particular secret stash is an episode that he put out last week which you can find it if you just search in your podcast app, Revolutions. It's the most recent one. It's called um, 
5.17a, so fifth season, 17th episode, but it's a supplemental, Gregor McGregor. So like that alone should be good enough reason to listen because a man with a name like that must have accomplished so good. amazing things. Yeah, <laughs> but it. it's essentially, without ruining too much of it, it is essentially a story no, about... No, please ruin it. Please okay. ruin it. Well, it's a story about how like one man single-handedly pulled off the greatest like heist of financial history. But it is so fascinating how this one dude just spread like the thickest layer of bullshit jam, if you pardon my metaphor and swearing, um, and, and basically like duped like the London Stock Exchange, the banks, the monarchy, and like got people to invest in and buy something that was totally a fabrication. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, but it's a fa- fascinating, fascinating story. And if you if you cue in and you're like getting lost in the details because um, it sort of takes place in the middle of a season, just fast forward to 15 minutes remaining, which is when like the story of that actual heist takes place, and it'll like totally blow your mind. It makes Madoff look like I don't know Bernie Sanders. Like, the rest of it's really good too, <laughs> by the way. The two Bernies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> my secret stash is a couple of years ago. Uh, my favorite show on television was a show called Parks and Recreation, and uh, it's a pretty funny show. You could check it out. And um, one of the characters, who was only on a, a couple episodes, but it turns out he was also one of the writers and one of the executive producers, his name is Harris Whittles. And um, when he, he actually, unfortunately, passed away uh, two years ago, or basically a year and a half ago. And um, when I was, you know, there was like articles up, you know, on the news about, you know, about his, about his death. And it said that he did this podcast called... Uh, analyze fish and i was like what? what what is this and it was also with this guy named scott ackerman who is also from another podcast and tv show called comedy bang bang and i was like all right i'll, I'll check this out it's kind of cool i haven't really listened to any podcasts at all and it is awesome i mean when you're looking for like after the election and you don't want to listen to any more like election type podcasts and you want to just listen to like a hilarious podcast check out um analyze fish he's basically trying to convince scott to like the band Fish and like Adam Scott's on it also and they have a couple different uh, guests and also like they actually go to a show and anyway it's really really awesome and I cannot recommend it enough. So that's it for this week. I want to thank uh, my co-host Nissan Rivlin. Thank you. Joshua Hamutz. It was a great time Josh. Ralph Blumenthal. Go vote. Go vote. Um, Join us next week if you could uh, like us on Facebook or wherever else social media that you can. And, uh, yeah, have a great week. Say what you want about the tenets of national socialism. At least it's an ethos. Is that a line from a movie? Yeah, yeah, I love movies. Big Lebowski. Uh, (laughs) A Nazi Walter? (laughs) Say what you want about the tenets of national socialism. These men are cowards. They're not Nazis. They're nihilists. (laughs) (laughs) Even even nothing. It's it's, it's a great movie. They're nihilists, Walter. (laughs)